Chapter 32 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 32 Crips on Celibacy. Whatever might or may be said by any number of the most able and homicidal physicians, Russell Overshoot will believe as long as he draws breath of life that by the grace of the Lord he owes that privilege to the fire bell. In this belief he has always been most strongly supported by Esther Cripps, who perhaps was the first to suggest the idea, for he at that time must have failed to know a fire bell from a water bucket. The doctors had left him, through no fear of their own lives, but in despair of his. There was far less risk of infection now than in the earlier stages. No sooner, however, did the household find out that the medical men had abandoned the case then panic seized their gallant hearts, and with one accord they ran away. From Saturday morning till Saturday night, when Esther came from Beckley, there was nobody left to watch and soothe the poor despairing misery, except the helpless and worn-out mother. One thing is certain, and even the doctors with their usual sharpness found it wise to acknowledge this, both Mr. Overshoot and his mother must have been dead bodies with little hope of Christian burial. If that brave girl had not set forth, without any one even asking her, on the Saturday night to help them, Mrs. Overshoot had quite thrown up all hope of everything, save the mercy of God in a better world, and his justice upon her enemies. Then, quite in the dark, this young girl came while she was lying down on her back and curtsied and asked her pleasure. If Esther had not curtsied, perhaps, Mrs. Overshoot, in that state of mind, would have taken her for an angel though Eddie's bonnet, made by herself, was not at all angelical, but she knew her for one of the lower orders, who bend knee instead of neck, and belonging herself to a fine old race, she rallied her last energies with a power of condescension. However, these are medical, physical, social, economical, and perhaps even psychological questions, wherein what remains except perpetual inquiry. Enough is to say that Russell Overshoot, having long had a ringing in his ears, was wrung out of that, and wrung back to life, by the lively peal of the fire bell. And ever since that, whenever he is ill, though it be only a little touch of gout, he immediately sends a good corpulent man to lay hold of the rope and swing to it. These things are of later date. For the present, this young man, although he certainly had turned the corner, lay still in a very precarious state, with a feeble mother to pray for him. Mrs. Overshoot held that the same vile fever, but in a very different form, as at her time of life was natural. With her it was intermittent, low, stealthy, and undermining. It never affected her brain, or drove her into furious calenture, but rooted slowly inward, preying on her life quite leisurely. Their cases differed as a knockdown blow differs from a quiet grasp. But though the house lay still in sadness, loneliness, and dull suspense, and though the doctors, having abandoned the case, had the manners not to come again, still from day to day there was some little growth of liveliness. Hardenau came almost daily, having put his class of striders under a deputy six-leaguer. The squire also might be expected whenever Mother Holcomb let him out and even Zachary Cripps renewed an old washing in that direction. He came with the hoops of his cart taken out, because of the beautiful weather, and four good baskets of clothes for to wash, 
whose wearers were happy enough to have no idea where their things were, and quite at the center of his gravity, as felt by himself and endorsed by Dobbin, anybody getting up with a curious eye might well have beheld a phenomenon, for here stood a very large pickling tub, with a cover taken off for the sake of air. Around the sides was salted pork, hands and springs and belly pieces, and in the middle was a good-sized barrel of the then-existent native. Bein cried Cripps with his coat-tails up while tugging at his heavy tub. Feedin', Eddie, whatsoever you do, salt is the main thing for em now. I have heard tell that they burns away every bit of the salt inside em in these here bouts of fever. If ye can replace em, life comes round, or else they goes off like the snuff of a candle. Bless me, I must be getting very miserable, or never should have a job to lift this here. Now, the quality of this pickle you know well, for the most part fell on your shoulders. Home-bred, home-born, home-fed, home-slaughtered, and home-salted. That's what I calls pork. Yes, to be sure, Zack, Eddie answered, lying her hand to the tub upon the shaft stock, while Dobbin wagged his tail at her. But what have you got in this very small cask, sitting in the middle of all the brine? Why, you know, Eddie, you must have seen me bringing them for all the great folk about Christmas tide. Oysters as live in the sea and must be salt inside of their barrels, so I clapped them in here for a fresh smack of it. And uncommonly strengthening things they be if you take them with another treble X. Likely his worship will be too weak to keep them down with the covers on yet, as is the proper way, they tell me, so you best way take out the hearts and give them. Oh, brother, cried Esther, remembering suddenly, I ought not to be talking to you like this. Whatever could I be thinking of, what would the people at Beckley say? They would fear to come nigh you for a month, Zack, and your business would be ruined. Don't do jog on, you and dear old Dobbin. How well I knew the sound of his old feet. I can't give you the fever, Dobbin, can I? With this perhaps incorrect, or at any rate unestablished hypothesis, she gave the old horse a lingering kiss just below his blinkers, in return for which he jerked off some froth on the sleeve of her dress and shook himself, while the carrier, having discharged his cargo, smote himself with both arms from habit rather than necessity, and approached his young sister for his usual hearty smack. No, Zack, no, she cried, running up the steps. I have no fear of taking it myself, whatever. But if I should happen to give it to you, I should never get over it. Well, well, little un, the Lord knows best, Master Cripps answered without repining too bitterly at this arrangement. But aiding of my vittles lonesome is worse than having no salt to em. You better come home pretty soon, my dear, or somehow or other there might happen to be someone over in the corner, alongside of our best frying pan. Eddie had heard this threat so often that now she only laughed at it, but instead of laughing she blushed most sadly at her brother's parting words. God bless you, Eddie, for a brave good girl, and speed you home to Beckley. You want more sleep of nights, my dear. Your cheeks are getting like a pillowcase. But excuse my mentioning of one thing, Eddie. I be like a father to eat. Don't ye have more than you can help to say to the great scholar Master Harden now? Cripps was a gentleman in an inner kind of way, and he took good care to be getting up his shaft. 
with his stiff knee stiffer than ever from the long frost of last winter, while he discharged his duty, as he thought it, at, as well as to, his sister. Then he deposited the polished part of his breeches on the driving board, and brought his game leg into the right stick-out, and with his usual deliberation started, nay, that is too strong a word, persuaded into progress his congenial and deliberate horse. Neither of them hurried on a washing day any more than they hurried upon any other day. Zachary knew that his sister was, as Master Phil Hiss had said of her, the most terrible hand at blushing, and she could not bear to be looked at in this electric aura of maidenhood, and therefore she managed to be a long way off ere even he turned both head and hand to deliver last issue of God Bless You. Full confusion about herself and cleanness of duty for other people, Esther Cripps ran in to see the many things now depending upon her. There were now three servants in the house gathered from good staff around, but wholly void of any wit to make up for want of experience. Esther had no experience either, but she possessed a good store of sense and quickness and kind energy. Whatever she thought of her brother's warning, she would think of afterwards. For the present, she must do her best concerning other people, and Mrs. Overshoot needed now more nursing than her son did. Zachary Cripps, at the very first distance at which he was sure of not being seen, began to shake his head and shook it in a resolutely reflective way for nearly three quarters of a mile. The trees above him were alive with beauty, alike of sight and sound and scent, and the carrier made up his mind for a pipe to enable him to consider things. His custom was not to smoke except when good occasion offered, and he tried to have no contempt for carriers of inferior family who could not deliver a side of bacon without smoking it over again almost. Zachary Cripps, like all good men, stood up for the dignity of his work. Strictly meditating thus, he saw a slight figure approaching with a rapid swing and presently met Mr. Hardenow. The fellow and tutor of Brazenose, at the sight of Cripps and the well-known cart, stopped short to ask how things were going on at the house on the hill above them. The carrier answered that it would be many a long day, he was afraid, ere his worship could get about again and that he ought to be kept very quiet, and those would be his best friends now who had the least to say to him. Also he was told that the poor old lady would find it as much as her life was worth, if she was interrupted or terrified now. But my good Cripps, answered Hardenow, I am not going either to interrupt or terrify them. All I desire is to have a little talk with your good and intelligent sister." Poor Zachary felt that his own tactics thus were turned against him, and after a little stammering and heightened glow of countenance he betook himself to his more usual course, that of plain outspeaking. But first he got down from his driving board, that he might not fail in due respect to a gentleman and clergyman. Master Cripps had no liking at all for the duty which he felt bound to take in hand, he would rather have a cow with three turnpike men than presume to speak to a gentleman. Therefore his bow legs seemed to twitch him at the knee, as he led Hardenow aside into a quiet gateway. But his eyes were firm and his manner grave and steadfast as he began to speak. Mr. Hardenow, I must ask your pardon, but for a few words as I want to say. 
You are a gentleman, of course, and a very learned scholar, and I be nothing but a common carrier. A carrier for hire, they calls me in the law when they comes upon me for damages. Howsoever, I has to do my part off the road as well as on it, sir, and my duty to them of my own household comes next to my duty to God and myself. You are a good man, I know, and a kind one, and would not, be known to yourself, harm anyone. It would go to your heart, I believe, Mr. Hardenow, from what I seed of you, when you was quite a lad, if anyhow you was to be art or part in bringing unhappiness of mind to any that had trusted you. I should hope so, Cripps. I have some idea what you mean, but can hardly think. At any rate, speak more plainly. Well then, sir, I means all about your goings-on with our little Eddie, or at any rate her goings-on with you which cometh to the same thing in the end, so far as I be acquaint of it. You might think, if you was not told distinctly to the contrary, that having no business to lift up her eyes, she never would do according. But I do assure you, sir, when it cometh to such like manner of taking on, the last thing as ever gets called into the account is sensible reason. They feels this, and they feels that, and then they falls into a dreamin', and the world goes into their tub, same as butter, and they scoops it out and pats and stamps it to their own size and liking, and then the whole melteth and a sour fool is left. Master Cripps, what you say is wise, and the like has often happened, but your sister is a most noble girl. You do her gross injustice by talking as if she were nothing but a common village maid. She is brave, she is pure, she is grandly unselfish. Her mind is well above feminine average. Anything more so goes always amiss. You should not have such a low opinion as you seem to have of your sister, Cripps. Sir, my opinion is high enough. Now you bring your own fine words to the test. Would you ever dream of marrying the maid if I and she both was agreeable? It would be an honor to me to do so. For the prejudices of the world I care not one fig, but surely you know that we contend for the celibacy of the clergy. Mainin' as a parson mightn't marry a wife? asked Cripps by the light of nature. Yes, my friend, that is what we now maintain in the Anglican communion as the tradition of the church. Well, may I be danged, cried Cripps, who was an ardent theologian. And if I may make so bold to ask, sir, how could there have been a tribe of Levi? They must all have died out in the first generation, if them ever come to any generation at all. Your objection is ingenious, Cripps, but the analogy fails entirely. We are guided in such matters by unbroken and unquestionable tradition of the early church. Then, sir, if you goes outside the Bible... You stand on your own legs and leave us no kind of leg to stand upon. However, I believe that you mean well, sir, and I am sure that you never do no great harm. And as to our Eddie, if you feel like that in an honest, helpless sort of way, I beg the honor of shaking hands, sir, for the spirit that is inside you. Certainly, certainly, Cripps with great pleasure. And then of asking you to tramp another road for your own sake as well as hers, sir. And may the Lord teach you to know your own mind. Cripps, I will follow your advice for the present, though you have said some things that you scarcely ought to say. 
and I humbly beg your pardon, sir. Every one of us doeth that same sometimes. The bridle of the tongue falleth into the teeth, and the lash is laid on us. Your metaphors are quite classical. However, I respect you greatly, Cripps, for your straightforward conduct. I am not a weak man any more than you are, although you seem to think me one. I like and admire your sister Esther for courage combined with gentleness. I always liked her when she was a child, and I understood her nature. But as to her liking me more than she ought, Cripps, you are imaginative. Never heard before, cried Cripps, any accusation of that kind. My friend, it is the rarest compliment. However, your horse is quite ready to walk off, and so am I towards Cowley. I will not go to Shotover Grange today, and I will avoid your sister, though I rarely do like talking to her. You are a man, sir, cried Zachary Cripps as Hardnow set off across the fields. God bless your reverence, though you never get a wife. A true man he is, and mightn't have been a fine one if he hadn't taken to them stiff coattails. End of chapter 32